Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel, broadcasting remotely. Connecticut isn't where it used to be in the spring when COVID-19 cases peaked, and that's a good thing. But how long will it last? Today, the acting commissioner of the State Department of Public Health joins us to answer our questions and yours. Dr. Deidre Gifford started leading the state's public health agency in May. She's also the commissioner of Connecticut's Department of Social Services. Dr. Deidre Gifford, again, welcome to where we live today. Thank you very much, Lucy. I'm happy to be here. Our listeners can join as well, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Commissioner Gifford, uh, we wanted to start, if you could explain to our listeners, when we think about all the different numbers and trends related to COVID-19, what are the numbers that you're paying attention to that accurately show our state status? Yes, thank you for that question. It's a really good one, and uh, and I understand uh, why the people want to know what should they be tracking to understand where Connecticut is in the pandemic. Um, of course, things have evolved in that regard as the pandemic began in March um, up until where we are now, and we have much better information about the status of the epidemic A couple of things that we look at on a regular basis, Um, we look at the number of cases per 100,000 population, and that's a commonly used measure. You see that in in different um, reports and media, and um, usually we look at the daily number of cases over a week, and we can compare one state to another. And we also look at test positivity And that is, um, of all of the tests that we perform on a particular day, how many of those tests come back positive? And and when a state is doing lots of testing, like we are now and, and most states are able to do, that measure gives you some sense of how much community transmission there is. Um, and then we also, of course, look at hospitalizations how many people are in the hospital with uh, COVID-related illness. And um, that one tends to lag behind um, the other measures, uh, but it's certainly important in helping us understand how our hospitals are coping and, uh, and how many people have serious illness related to COVID. Certainly when the number of hospitalizations uh, decline, that appears to be a good thing when we think about why we all started uh, social distancing and quarantining to make sure that our hospitals uh, do, do not end up over capacity. But the number of deaths in Connecticut have been steadily rising. And is that is that worrisome to you, Commissioner? Uh, the number of deaths has been um, in the low single digits pretty consistently over the past month or so. Um, we've had a number of days where we saw no deaths 
um, related to COVID, and that was the first time since very early in the pandemic. So um, all of the measures that I just uh, described, Lucy, have actually been pretty rock solid for the last month or so in Connecticut. Our cases per 100,000 continue to be among the lowest in the country. Um, Similarly, our test positivity at around 1% is among the lowest and on some days the lowest in the country. Um, Our hospitalizations have declined to a level around, it's fluctuating between 50 and 70 people hospitalized with COVID on any particular day, and that's also been very uh, steady over the last couple of weeks. So our numbers are uh, are consistent. Um, we're not down to zero, of course, but we are at a low level of community transmission right now, thankfully. Mm-hmm. Some listeners may pay attention to this initiative, COVID Act Now, which uh, has uh, states around our country in different shades of color uh, to show mm-hmm. that, uh, again, uh, the coronavirus risk level uh, for a very short time, uh, Connecticut's uh, color was green. And I saw a lot of uh, officials, including the governor's office, pointing that out. Now, when you look at that uh, ranking, Commissioner Gifford, uh, Connecticut is now orange. Is that problematic? What does that mean? Um, so last week, uh, for those of you who follow closely our daily numbers release, um, last week there was a bit of a catch-up of positive cases. There was a single lab um, that had not reported a number of positives that had a- occurred over um, several previous weeks. So there was a catch-up report uh, that was put into our numbers And um, that caused that switch from yellow to orange. If you took that catch-up number out, which were uh, previously positive, um, not from the most recent time period, we're still in the yellow zone. So that was a little bit uh, confusing because of that catch-up. But we are solidly uh, where we have been in the yellow zone. And I'm sure when uh, when that uh, website gets updated with the subsequent week, we'll be back in yellow. You're hearing Acting Commissioner of the State Department of Public Health here on Where We Live, Dr. Deidre Gifford. You can join our conversation if you have a question for Commissioner Gifford, the number 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So when we look at where cases are growing among our population, Commissioner Gifford, I understand we're seeing cases growing among young people. Tell us about this trend and how concerned are you? Well, it is concerning. Um, what we're seeing is that the, um, the percentage of cases now in young people between 20 and 40 um, is higher than any other age group. Um, so as, as we all are aware, um, during the height of the pandemic, um, the highest percentage of cases was in uh, people over the age of, of uh, 60. Um, that percentage has declined. So cases in those age groups have declined, um, but it hasn't declined um, as much in younger people. So what we see now is that um, that age group has the highest rate of cases. So it is concerning. We, uh, we of course, uh, see photos and hear anecdotes of um, uh, 
parties and uh, lack of mask wearing and lack of social distancing. And although we understand that there may be some, uh, as people say, COVID fatigue um, among people, that it's really important uh, to continue with those measures that have brought Connecticut to the really strong position we find ourselves in with respect to the pandemic. So we are very much encouraging everyone of, of all ages, but particularly young people. Um, if you have a social gathering, have it outside, um, wear your masks, keep your distance. Um, uh, indoor gatherings should be kept as small as possible and whenever possible, just members of your household. And um, if we follow those rules, we will be able to maintain the low level of community transmission that we're seeing now. Those are good guidelines, but do you think that young people in this age group uh, believe that COVID-19 is not something they have to worry about? They will not fall seriously ill like someone who is over 65? Well, I think, um, I think some of that message um, did get communicated earlier in the pandemic. Mm. But what we've learned is that um, um, about 40%, as much as 40% of COVID cases can be asymptomatic, but that people who are asymptomatic, not showing any signs or symptoms of COVID, people without those signs and symptoms can transmit the infection to others, including young people. And so, um, you know, I think... The, the message is getting through that even if you're not sick with COVID, you can be um, spreading it. We saw baseball players yesterday uh, who have been, um, we understand, frequently tested and most of them not showing any symptoms. Uh, many baseball, professional baseball players showed up positive. So I think that young people want to do the right thing. I think young people are uh, understand that they have an important role to play in uh, preventing the spread of, of COVID. And, um, you know, I think the more we learn and the more young people hear from one another and hear uh, from public health and scientists about the, important of, the importance of uh, following some of these simple guidelines and rules, um, that that they will they will do their part in making sure that COVID doesn't come back to Connecticut. Again, if you have a question for Connecticut's top public health official, official acting uh, commissioner, Dr. Deidre Gifford, you can join us 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, because we're talking about uh, young people, we know that college campuses uh, will try to reopen in, in just a few weeks. Uh, some of the protocols for students would be to quarantine uh, for two weeks before starting class. Do you think that that's possible, given the fact, especially on, on a college setting, uh, young people want to be social. They want to be around others. We heard from a, a UConn uh, professor who did a focus group with UConn students that students are, are very uh, forward when they say that mask adherence may not work in all social situations, and that might be hard to do, Commissioner. Well, I... Um... I think we all have to acknowledge that there is some inconvenience 
that's associated um, with with uh, complying with all of these rules. But um, but I also think that most people want to do their part in um, in controlling this pandemic because what's the alternative? Um, the alternative is dorms or or uh, schools needing to reclose or cancel classes. Um, the alternative is. Um, potentially more infections on campus. So I think um, I think most students do want to do the right thing. And I know that many of the colleges, for example, are asking them to sign pledges um, that they will um, uh, comply with mask wearing and social distancing. I, um, I encourage um, young people to um, to take these steps because they're simple and they work. And I think that's the really important thing um, for all of us to keep in mind is that um, this illness, because it's spread for the most part, person to person by close personal contact, can also be prevented by these simple measures of keeping distance and wearing a mask or cloth face covering. So I think students, when they come back to school, they will face challenges. There will be inconvenience. But I also have a lot of confidence that they want to do the right thing and, and that they will do their part um, to keep this, uh, this infection at bay in Connecticut. You can ask Commissioner Gifford your question, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Diana's calling in from Granby. Diana, what's your question? Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Commissioner Gifford, my question is about that particular lab that failed to report their positive cases, and there was that lag time, and now we're seeing an effect in our numbers um, with the data being entered as a latent entry. What was the reason for the lab not reporting it, and are there penalties for labs if they are not reporting in a timely manner? Thank you. That's a, that's a great question. Yes, um, the, there is a requirement that, um, that labs uh, prov- provide reports in a timely fashion to the Department of Public Health. This was an issue of um, uh, the transmission of the information, and um, we're making sure that the lab followed all of the guidelines and protocols to get the information to us promptly. Um, we think that there was some miscommunication here and not a willful failure to report. Hmm. Commissioner Gifford, I wanted to ask about testing. Just last week, uh, the State Department of Public Health announcing that there were at least 90 false positive tests in the state. Explain to our listeners again how that happened. Uh, Was there a flaw in the testing system, and did that flaw exist in a testing outside the state? Mm -hmm. Um, Yes, it's important that people... Um, who are getting tests for COVID have confidence in their results. So the first thing I want to say, Lucy, is that um, the overwhelming majority uh, of the tests that are reported are an accurate result. So I want people to keep that in mind. We did have in our state public health laboratory, um, we uncovered 90 cases that were reported as positive, which later turned out to be, in fact, negative. How that occurred is that um, our laboratory had been following all of the protocols, um, doing the quality checks, and there had been no red flags in um, the processing of those specimens. 
However, in doing some further testing um, for a new type of uh, specimen processing, um, they needed to look a little deeper um, than the usual protocol. And when they looked a little deeper than the usual protocol, that's when um, these false positives were discovered. Um, so I'm actually um, very proud of our lab at the Connecticut Department of Public Health for uncovering this flaw. We reported it um, immediately to, um, to the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, which oversees these, uh, these systems. We also shared the information with the other labs in Connecticut that use this same Thermo Fisher system. We shared the information with the CDC, which has subsequently sent out a national alert to everyone who uses the equipment to make sure that, that uh, other labs uh, are aware of it. Um, and then we've talked to, to all the labs in the state of Connecticut to make sure that they do an impact analysis um, of this flaw to see if any of their testing might have been impacted. We've also, as you uh, probably have heard, we followed up with all of the nursing homes and um, assisted living where these individuals reside um, to make sure that, uh, that the providers and the residents themselves understand the, what occurred and how to respond. Mm. I'm glad you brought that up because my understanding was that most of these false positives were from residents in nursing homes or assisted living facilities. And is, was, is that concerning considering that the state's plan at the time was when there was a positive case? So wasn't, weren't those residents then put in a different facility to help uh, keep the transmission rate low and not spread further into the place that they live normally? Uh, you are correct that of the 90 uh, individuals that were impacted, 63 were nursing home residents and uh, five were uh, residents of assisted living um, residents. And um, in general, when an individual in a nursing home tests positive for COVID, um, what, the, what the nursing home does and what we recommend is uh, to do what's called cohorting, um, that is to um, group patients with similar test results together. Um, nobody was moved out of their mm. facility as a result of these false positive tests. Um, many had subsequent negative testing after the false positive, and we're making sure that each of them is retested. Some of them were um, cohorted with um, COVID-positive residents as a result, um, that's all been corrected, um, and we're not aware of any um, adverse impacts as a result of that cohorting. Um, there was one of the 90 uh, individuals who had subsequently passed away. Um, that individual, sadly, was already uh, terminally ill. They had been on hospice care prior to, um, to the false positive test. Mm. So we continue to work with the providers and the nursing homes um, but, and, and make sure that all of these individuals are retested. We're very grateful for their collaboration and cooperation. Um, and so far, uh, we haven't detected any adverse health impacts for the individuals. 
We're going to take a quick break. My guest today is Dr. Deidre Gifford. She's acting commissioner of the State Department of Public Health. If you have a question for Commissioner Gifford, here's the number, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest today is Dr. Deidre Gifford. She's acting commissioner of the State Department of Public Health. Do you have a question for her as Connecticut tries to keep the number of COVID-19 cases low? Do you wonder how state public health officials are working with your child's school to keep students and staff safe? If schools do reopen in another month, you can join us 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. I want to take a quick call. Commissioner Gifford, Cynthia is calling in from West Hartford. Cynthia, you're on the show. Cynthia, can you hear me? Oh, doesn't look like uh, Cynthia is there anymore. Um, she, the question she had though, looks like she wanted to know Commissioner Gifford about the effectiveness of doing asymptomatic testing. Oh, that's a great question, uh, Cynthia. So um, asymptomatic testing is an important tool um, because, as I mentioned, um, many people who have uh, COVID infection don't have um, any symptoms. So um, we want people, particularly people who live in high-risk communities um, and who work in high-risk settings, um, to be tested. So, um, so Governor Lamont's testing strategy actually um, asks for uh, individuals that live in some of our cities like New Haven and Hartford, um, Bridgeport, who were um, most adversely impacted in the first wave of the pandemic to get tested on a regular basis. We have been working with um, partners our federally qualified health centers and our health systems in Connecticut to set up um, testing venues in those high-risk communities so that people without symptoms um, can access a test. And in that way, we can monitor whether COVID is starting to come back to Connecticut. In addition to that, another important group of asymptomatic individuals that we've been testing are um, workers in nursing homes. Um, we know that uh, nursing homes were hard hit in the first wave of the pandemic, and we've been working extremely hard um, with the governor's leadership to um, put processes in place to make sure that doesn't happen. And our nursing homes and their staffs have been working extremely hard um, to make sure that that uh, that that. Uh, those processes are put in place. So we've been testing nursing home. Uh, staff, um, whether they have symptoms or not, and we've also been testing nursing home residents. And that kind of surveillance of asymptomatic people will help us understand um, uh, whether the, the COVID infection might be starting to increase. Right now, we're seeing very low rates of positivity in asymptomatic people that we're testing. 
You mentioned nursing home residents and staff. Just clarify, how often are they being tested, Commissioner? So uh, the governor issued an executive order that um, mandates that staff in nursing homes be tested every week um, until such time as uh, they have been all negative among both the staff and the residents for two weeks. And then uh, residents were all tested um, in May and June, and the recommendation from CDC, which we um, are also recommending, is that um, resident testing continue until such time as there are no positives whatsoever uh, for two weeks' time in that facility. So um, that strategy has been very effective. Um, Most of our nursing homes now are reporting that they're not seeing cases of of COVID. And um, so the testing strategy, the isolation and the testing of staff has been a a really successful strategy for for our facilities. We know that uh, the unions for these uh, healthcare workers within nursing homes, they want to see uh, testing be more frequent. How do you address their concerns? Well, I certainly um, uh, will start by saying thank you to all of the workers in, in nursing homes, in particular, all of our healthcare workers throughout this pandemic um, have uh, really uh, shown how how important they are and how important their work is. Um, And it's been a particularly rough time for um, our staff in nursing homes. So I'll start by by thanking them for their dedication and the care and concern that they provide to uh, to all those residents in nursing facilities. Um, The testing um, every week is um, the recommendation from CDC. They do um, suggest that when um, we start to see, if we start to see community spread again, um, that facilities should restart the testing of staff, even if they've had two weeks of negatives. So our executive order also says that the Department of Public Health may change its recommendations to restart testing if we start to see signs of community spread again. You can join our conversation with Acting Commissioner of the State Department of Public Health, Dr. Deidre Gifford, the number 888-720-9677. Patrick's calling in from Bridgeport. Patrick, what's your question? Hi, uh, good morning. Uh, My question is, with the advent of contact tracing, um, looking backwards, where are the new cases populating from? Um, is it gyms or restaurants, bars? I think bars are closed, but where where are we getting new cases from? If we're socially separating, wearing masks, and washing our hands, there should, there should be an evidence base being developed from the contact tracing where, in general, the new cases are emanating from. That's uh, a great question, Patrick. And um, we are doing a lot more contact tracing now. Um, we've got a, a statewide electronic system that all of our cases are entered into. Um, our partners in local health departments are taking the lead on contact tracing in their communities. Um, but whenever there are cases that they, um, they have a lot of responsibilities uh, related to COVID and their usual Work And so whenever there are cases that they're not able to get to, we have a a backup staff from the state 
that's jumping in to make sure that the uh, these people are contacted within 48 hours. And well over 90% of our contacts are being contacted now um, within the first 48 hours, which is what we need to see. Um, with respect to your question, um, we're not seeing particular patterns right now emerge. Um, we are following a couple of outbreaks in Fairfield County uh, that we know have been traced back to social gatherings among young people. We are concerned about that, uh, which is why, uh, you know, I was re- reminding our, our uh, young adult friends and, and listeners uh, the importance of social distancing, mask wearing, and, and holding gatherings outdoors. Um, so we've seen a couple of those uh, outbreaks, but right now with the low prevalence that we're seeing in Connecticut, we're not seeing particular patterns of uh, where we can point to where, uh, where transmission might be happening. Mostly what we see is that with, if we find a contact that's positive, it's a household member um, and that the community spread is uh, is being mitigated right now with our social distancing measures. Mm. Commissioner Gifford, you said that for contact tracing, most of the people are being contacted within 48 hours. Is that what you, what I heard correctly? It, you did hear correctly. Mm. So um, when the test result is entered into our system, and there can be uh, delays there, which we are working hard to uh, minimize, but once the, the case is put into the system, over 90% are being reached out to uh, within the first 48 hours. Mm-hmm. Not everybody responds. Yes, and that was my... Making that <laughs> <laughs> That's where I was going with this is because it is voluntary and I wanted That's to know right. in terms of how many people are actually responding and getting back uh, to these volunteers and local health districts, Commissioner. Yeah, so it, it's getting much better, Lucy. Um, we're seeing close to half of uh, people actually being reached, um, which is much higher than we were seeing earlier on. We have a, a single phone number now that's uh, when you pick up your phone or you get a call from a contact tracer, it says CT COVID trace um, so that people know it's not spam, um, that they're getting a call from their local health department or health district or CT COVID trace. And um, we're hoping that that will help people have confidence in picking up the phone. Um, the information that they provide is confidential. The health departments um, do not share that information for purposes other than contact tracing. And this is the way that we're going to keep COVID um, at bay in Connecticut is by making sure that we, we trace contacts, that people isolate if, they've, uh, if they're sick, that people quarantine if they're exposed. That is the tried and true public health way uh, to mm-hmm. keep epidemics from spreading. Just one quick question before we hear from more listeners, Commissioner, in terms of that contact tracing software that the state rolled out for to help local health districts. I understand that was rocky at first. Uh, what is the uh, usability now in terms of is it something that's effective? Because we know local health districts have been underfunded. And I'm just wondering in terms of the software, um, is this a, a, a good way to help track uh, in an easy manner? Mm-hmm. Um So I'm going to start by saying um, to anybody who works at a local health district or local health department here in Connecticut, thank you for your efforts. Um, You've been working hard, and there's a lot on your plate. So we are grateful for your partnership and collaboration. Um, It was There were bumps in the road, Lucy, like with all software deployments. 
And um, we, we rolled this out in the middle of a pandemic um, in a very short time frame. But um, that being said, um, through a lot of very hard work by our, our staff at the Department of Public Health and our uh, partners in local health, um, the many, if not most, of those um, bumps have been smoothed. Each week, we learn more about the, the software and the process. Each week, things get a little bit better. Um, and what I hear now, and I speak to local health uh, directors every week, what I hear now is that things are going much more smoothly. Uh, we still have bumps in the road, but um, all of our health districts are now using this software, and um, it is an effective tool for us to track as a state where we are in contact tracing. You can join our conversation with Acting Public Health Commissioner Dr. Deidre Gifford, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Diana is calling from Willington. Diana, go ahead. Hi, uh, thank you. My question is with going back to UConn with all the students coming in from around the country and the other parts of the country that have not been following the COVID best practices, mask wearing, social distancing. We see all the stories of students and, you know, young people with parties, etc. Are we, what, what makes us think that all those people will suddenly like magically follow the guidelines here? You know, we've done such a good job in Connecticut so far. We see people wearing masks all the time and, you know, keep being mindful of, of social distancing. Yes, and, and um, I think our, our success uh, in keeping COVID uh, at bay in Connecticut is due um, to our our residents, and it's uh, people have been, uh, for the most part, following the guidance, and that is um, a key uh, to um, you know the, the success that we've seen. In addition to our uh, t- to Governor Lamont's slow and, and careful reopening strategy, which has really um, followed the data and the science. So I understand your concern. Um, we, the, the governor did issue the travel advisory executive order um, followed by um, the commissioner's order from the Department of Public Health that people traveling from these impacted states do need to complete a traveler form uh, when they enter Connecticut and they do need to quarantine um, for two weeks after their arrival. The reason for that um, is because it can take that long for, uh, for an individual to develop COVID after they've been exposed. It can take as much as 14 days. So you really do need to keep that quarantine. Um, and we understand that that's, um, that's going to be an inconvenience and a challenge for college students. Um, but our universities and colleges are working really hard to make that work. Um, I think they, we, we all know that the success of a return to school is going to rely on um, minimizing any exposure to COVID in those settings, and quarantine is a really important and effective tool. So I'm, you know, I'm calling on our returning college students to sign that pledge and and follow what it says. We're counting on you to do so, um, and I I think that our colleges and universities are going to work really hard to make sure that this is a successful return to school. Cynthia is calling in from Glastonbury. Cynthia, what's your question? Hi, yes, I um, had COVID myself back in early May and I was very easily able to go on 
online and get testing done same day at the CVS at Long Wharf and get rapid results. My sister just developed symptoms last week and was totally unable to get any testing done anywhere for rapid testing. Uh, she was going to have to wait a full week for an appointment. And the other testing, CVS's either didn't have any appointments available or were six to ten day wait for results. She ended up going to an urgent care, which has now been five days with no results. And this many months into the pandemic, I was just shocked to find out that it was so difficult to get rapid testing. Um, well, I'm glad that you have recovered, and I'm sorry to hear that your uh, your sister is is ill. So um, thank you for sharing that feedback. And um, we agree with you that um, uh, a rapid turnaround is important. Um, and because of the a number of cases that we're seeing around the country, some laboratories who also do testing in other states are seeing longer turnaround times. We are tracking that at the state level, and we are doing <clears throat> as much as we can to shift testing volume to some of our local labs who have a shorter turnaround time. Some of our providers have longstanding relationships with some of these national labs, and it's very, um, it, it can be difficult for them to shift in midstream, but we are working with providers in Connecticut to shift as much of this testing volume as we can um, to local labs. And, and we also need a national solution to this challenge. Um, we need a, a national solution to producing more testing materials and uh, to coordinating the distribution of those testing materials. So uh, that's going to be a very important part of the solving the challenge that you're pointing to. I encourage anyone who's feeling symptomatic, um, as, as, uh, as difficult as it is to remain isolated um, if they're feeling ill, and, um, and know that Governor Lamont and myself, and we're all working on um, this testing challenge that we're facing right now. Commissioner Gifford, uh, I didn't want to run out of time before we talked about the guidance that your department is providing the State Department of Education and local school districts as they've come up with uh, different plans uh, if schools are able to reopen in the fall. Can you talk a little bit more about, you know, to help allay some of the concerns that parents may have, uh, rightfully so, like how can a, a school keep uh, this virus uh, from, you know, there being an outbreak. Talk, talk us through how you're giving guidance to school districts. Yeah. So, um, well, we know from, from other places around the world that it can, schools can reopen safely. So that's the first thing uh, to say. And the other thing to say is that when you have low community spread, like we've been talking about, Lucy, uh, here in Connecticut, um, that the risks are low. Um, of, of uh, returning to the classroom. That doesn't mean um, that we shouldn't have the kinds of masking and social distancing and um, cleaning uh, protocols that uh, the governor and Commissioner Cardona and DPH have put in place. Those are really important. Um, we are working with the uh, State Department of Education and the governor's office on a daily basis uh, talking about school reopening. It's a high priority, of course, for the governor to make sure that this is done safely. Um, and, you know, uh, we want to work with local uh, school districts and local health departments to make sure they understand the guidance 
around um, uh, masking and social distancing, that they understand what to do if um, the unlikely event right now that there were to be a case in their schools, how to, how to manage that. And, and importantly, you know, when should they start thinking about um, distance learning? What would community spread look like? And they should start look, thinking about um, uh, switching to a more distance learning model. So there's lots of continuing work um, to share. But I do want uh, parents who, as you mentioned, have understandable concerns. I do want parents to know that the Department of Public Health is working on a daily basis with the State Department of Education. Um, to make sure they have the latest and uh, most up-to-date information about how to keep our our students, our faculty, and our staff safe when we return to school. Mm. If a child uh, goes to school and has a fever, we know that that's a, a symptom uh, that can be of many different illnesses, including uh, having uh, coronavirus. And so I'm wondering how schools will be able to handle testing requirements uh, for that child if they want to return, Commissioner. Well, um, the, the uh, school plans um, will describe how to handle a, a child or a faculty member, for that matter, who has um, developed a fever while they're in school. Um, so that, that protocol will be set, um, and schools will know how to, how to handle that. Um, and, um, you know, testing will be determined by whether that child needs to have a, a test or not, and how that should be managed will be, be determined by the family working with their um, uh, health care provider. And, um, you know, medical advisors and local health departments will be working with school nurses and school superintendents to make sure that all of those protocols are in place. I wanted to fit in one more call for Commissioner Gifford. Clifford's calling in from Winstead. Uh, Clifford, if you could quickly ask your question. Yeah, hi. Um, I'm a family doc and. One of my concerns is that there are numerous um, different testing companies being employed in, in Connecticut, or the test kits are coming from different companies, and false negative rates run between 15 and 40 percent, according to various literature that I've read. And it seems um, difficult to find out exactly which company is testing you and um, what's being done with those results. Uh, when they do come back, assuming they come back on a timely level. If we have a lot of asymptomatic people walking around and they're getting a false negative test, they could be told they're okay and they're still spreading. So what, what's the scoop on that? Commissioner. Um, yes, and thanks, Clifford, and, and thanks for your work uh, caring for individuals in Connecticut that, that are sick with COVID. So um, there are a lot of tests on the market right now. Um, and I think it's what's important for people to know is that the, the kind of the gold standard right now is what's called PCR testing. Um, and, and those are the tests, the most common tests that are on the market. Um, there are some tests that have um, a relatively higher false negative rate. Um, and uh, those tests should only be used under certain circumstances. It's the responsibility of the provider that, and the lab that are using um, those testing kits, um, sometimes under experimental authorization from the FDA. It's important for those providers to inform people who have a negative result um, if they should take any follow-up steps. 
So um, for the most part, though, um, I do want to remind people that for the most part, the testing, um, the overwhelming number of tests that are out there, um, the results are accurate. And people should um, uh, should feel confident that the test that they've received um, is the right result. Um, anytime you're in a situation like we're in now where we're rapidly developing new technologies and new tests, there will be small numbers that need to be that, that are um, erroneous. But each day and each week, we learn more about these tests. And, and um, for the most part, all of the testing that's um, being done people should feel confident in relying on the result. We're going to have to leave it there. I want to thank Acting Public Health Commissioner Dr. Deidre Gifford for joining us today. We really appreciate your time today, Commissioner. Thank you for having me on. This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. After the break, we hear from Connecticut Public Radio reporter, health reporter, Nicole Leonard. You can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Joining us now on Zoom is Nicole Leonard. She's a healthcare reporter for Connecticut Public Radio. Nicole, welcome back to the show. Hey, Lucy. Thanks for having me. I wanted you to respond to our interview with Commissioner Giffords. Let's start with uh, young people and the rate of coronavirus cases rising. Uh, what can you tell us? Yeah, this is a new trend because if you remember back in uh, March when it really became widespread in Connecticut, the focus was on um, older residents and people with um, underlying medical conditions. They were the most at risk. Um, Certainly the highest rate of new cases we were seeing were in the older adult population, especially uh, people in nursing homes. But now as Connecticut cases are, are leveling out, and I guess you could say the curve is uh, being flattened, um, the new cases, the the rate of new cases are, we're seeing a spike in that young adult um, population. And I think the commissioner had mentioned this, but, um, you know, young adults, they have some factors around them that goes beyond. I think pe- people, uh, it's easy to say that they um, may not care as much or, or may ta- not take it as seriously, but even factors like young people are more likely to live together mm-hmm. um, that have different jobs and go out and they may, you know, social socialize or live in the same places that make spreading of the disease more probable. So even stuff like that, um, you know, young people, uh, it's easy to see why they mm-hmm. might be becoming the group that is seeing uh, more of the newer cases. Nicole, I wanted to ask you, uh, I asked Commissioner Gifford about a testing among uh, nursing homes and assisted living facilities, uh, but I also wanted to, we didn't get a chance to talk about PPE. What are you hearing from home health aides and nurses? Especially, I mean, when we bring up the topic of home health aides, these are people who don't necessarily, they don't work in nursing homes or assisted living facilities. They go into people's homes. Um, And they have consistently over the pandemic have said that they have been lacking uh, personal protective equipment. They've been concerned about that. Um, They uh, workers have cited that um, there have them and their colleagues have tested positive. And what they really worry about is that before they know that they're positive or maybe that they are experiencing some of the symptoms of COVID-19, they're not sure 
you know, how responsible they are for passing it along to any of their patients, which is the last thing that they want to do. And so when we talk about testing of um, nursing home and assisted living uh, workers, um, you know, home health aides and nurses have said that they want to be tested too. And they're, they're not quite getting that right now. Mm. Uh, you know, everyone's been talking about this uh, second wave coming. I'm just wondering if you could provide us a little bit of context. You've got about a minute, Nicole. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. A lot of people have been talking about the second wave. We've been hearing about the second wave for months now, even when we were still in the first wave. <laughs> um, and, you know, early on, people thought it might be seasonal because of the weather. Um, they thought that the hot weather would um, decrease cases. And obviously, in other parts of the country where it's hotter uh, year round, they are seeing spikes now. So it's really not contained to the weather. But what the fall has, at least in the northeast part of the country where we are in Connecticut, is that um, we see uh, the emergence of other um infectious diseases like flu season and mm -hmm. uh, people get upper respiratory um, infections and other diseases. And so when those things have, people are more likely to congregate indoors again and, and be close inside. And so those are the factors that go around why we might see a second wave in Connecticut. And most public health officials will tell you that um, they don't anticipate that a second wave in Connecticut or a second spike, I should say, um, will be to the degree that we mm -hmm. saw it uh, during the first wave of the pandemic. Well, that's good news if that does happen. Nicole Leonard, uh, thank you for joining us. We took a lot more calls than we thought we were, so we appreciate your time, even though it was short. And we'll tweet out some links at where we live to Nicole Leonard's great reporting for Connecticut Public Radio. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.